1973 or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And cycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, filing deadline for child sexual abuse case expires. Local protests against Ukraine war and military budget. New York mayor believes that the big brother is protecting you. Femicide in the U.S. and Latin America. Dr. Maholtra wants COVID shots taken off the shelves until more research. The sanctions against Russia and their disastrous effects. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Ziri Rideau. And I'm Angela Birdsong. The LA Times is reporting that scores of lawsuits are being filed across the state as a December 31st filing deadline approaches for victims of childhood sexual abuse. A three-year window lifted the statute of limitations to give adults an opportunity to file the suits against their alleged abusers. City News Service reports, quote, Spurred by a 2020 change in state law, thousands of lawsuits alleging abuse as far back as the 1940s have been filed against dozens of organizations, including religious groups, private and public schools, sports groups, and nonprofit organizations. In some cases, the alleged perpetrators have been dead for decades. Once the window closes at the end of the year, quote, people older than 40 will once again be barred from suing over abuse suffered in California as children. The number of cases filed by the end of this year is expected to surpass the number of filings from 2003, the year when California became the first U.S. state to temporarily lift statutes of limitations for childhood sex abuse in the wake of the Catholic Church scandal. At that time, it was estimated that 850 clergy abuse of victims and 150 others sued churches, the Boy Scouts, and other institutions. As we reported yesterday, Los Angeles Department Chief Michael Moore has requested reappointment for a second term. The police chief is expected to is subject to approval by the L.A. City Council and Police Commission. A recent California poll, community poll conducted a few weeks ago, found that LAPD received a 55% favorability assessment with 33% having an unfavorable opinion of the department. Another survey conducted by Loyola Marymount University on police and community relations released in September had mixed results. According to that survey, two-thirds of Angelinos believe that the LAPD racially profiles black people at a higher rate than other groups. 
the percentage of respondents who describe their experiences with LAPD officers as mostly positive also dropped from 47% to 41% over the last two years. City News Service reports the parents of a 14-year-old girl who was hit by a stray LAPD bullet inside a North Hollywood clothing store in 2021 filed new court papers recently, seeking the personnel records of the officer who fired the weapon, as well as investigative reports and camera video. The City Police Commission previously ruled that Officer William Dorsey Jones violated policy in the December 23, 2021 shooting at the Burlington Coat Factory. According to the commission, Jones' first rifle shot at suspect Daniel Elena Lopez, who was attacking a woman inside the store on Victory Boulevard, was within the department's policy regarding the use of deadly force. But the panel found that Jones's second and third shots were out of policy. It was one of those shots that skipped off the floor and passed through a wall, killing 14-year-old Valentina Oriana Parata, a freshman at high-tech Los Angeles Charter School. She was hiding in a dressing room during the police activity. In their original suit, filed July 14th in Los Angeles Superior Court, the girls' parents allege that the city and Dorsey were were negligent. Subsequent to the shooting, quote, LAPD Chief Michael Moore and a majority of the Use of Force Review Board members found that Officer Jones inaccurately accessed the imminence of the threat of death or seriously bodily injury Elena Lopez posed when he fired all three rounds in an instant. Moore had changed his mind reacting to pressure after his earlier ruling that considered all three of Jones's shots were outside LAPD guidelines. Nearly 300 boys and girls allege in a new lawsuit they were sexually assaulted, harassed, and abused by Los Angeles County probation and detention officers while being held in county juvenile facilities, according to City News Service. The lawsuit filed last week in Los Angeles Superior Court says children detained at county juvenile camps and detention centers were abused during their detainment. Quote, Lawyers for the 279 plaintiffs contend the county failed 100s of minors through negligence, lacking adequate hiring policies to screen for potential sexual predators within its facilities, failure to provide appropriate training and supervision of staff and employees. The allegations include grooming, unsupervised inmate access to let, that led to verbal and physical abuse, and ad, inadequate training of employees on proper behavioral standards. Lawyers for the plaintiffs say Los Angeles County failed to provide juvenile detainees with necessary supervision to keep them safe. Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn said the accusations are, quote, stomach-turning. The officers responsible for this abuse need to be held accountable. They have no business working for the county, and they should face criminal charges. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. 
Concerned citizens and activist groups demonstrated today outside the office of House Representative Lou Correra in Santa Ana. We spoke to Code Pink's Rachel Bronke and Josie Garcia and San Pedro's Neighbors for Peace and Justice Chris Venn, as well as Veterans for Peace on location. So we're here as part of a regional effort in Orange County, Long Beach, greater area to go congressperson by congressperson and say we oppose this new war. We're just two months out of ending a 20-year war against Afghanistan, and now somehow we're involved in a brand new war, spending in one year possibly up to $100 billion. No so democracy, war. right, no more war. Democracy is the consent of the governed, and we do not consent. There has been no dialogue, and we do not consent to this war, and we believe that the American people knew more about how this war came to be, how we have been a part of it, and how much money is going from our local needs uh, to another country and not even, um, not even mostly accounted for. Apparently, 90% of all the weapons being sent to Ukraine aren't even getting to the place they're supposed to go. So we are at Representative Luke Correa's office in Santa Ana, And we are saying with local constituents and other members of our coalition, and we're here to say he is a ranking member of the House Oversight Accountability and Management Subcommittee. Well, he needs to do some oversight and keep the Pentagon accountable and manage our money better because we are desperately needing um, all of these things fixed at home. And yet more and more, we're seeing our money with zero debate go to yet another endless war. Code Pink and San Pedro Neighbors for Peace and Justice and also um, Veterans for Peace. Can you give me an idea? What is your group's reading on, you know, in both parties now, since these are big funders, obviously the military industrial complex, you know, they give money to both parties. So what do you think, what would be the best strategy to make it impossible that these um, lobbyists basically get into there and, and buy our politicians? The people need to know first. So part of one of our campaigns is we go in El Segundo and we do a car caravan at the military industrial complex that has Raytheon, McDonnell Douglas, Northrop Grumman, and very interestingly now, the LA Times. Uh, and we go there to, to raise consciousness about the military industrial complex, that the Los Angeles economy is built on war. And do we really want that? So here is uh, Chris of San Pedro Neighbors for Peace and Justice. We, we need stations like KPFK. We need a, we, we need a people's movement, yes. uh, which we... Uh, I'm, I uh, first became active during the war in Iraq, and there was a large move, movement, and it made a difference, along with the soldiers in, in Iraq making a difference. And we, we need that kind of movement today, and we need truth-telling that, that this is not a war for democracy or for nations' rights. Um, as as uh, Rachel mentioned just last week, Joe Biden pledged another $45 billion in support of Ukraine. And if the proposal is passed, as Rachel mentioned, it will be $100 billion since, since February. Mm -hmm. And this war wouldn't continue without the support of the United States. We need to answer this question of 
how do we build a people's movement for peace? Mm -hmm. And in San Pedro, we recognize this as providing money for health care, money for education, uh, money for housing, and, you know, make this a popular movement because it's affecting everybody. There's, there's no hospital beds. There's no education. There's no health care workers. There's no mental health care workers. And it's lots and lots of problems. And, you know, Chris, this isn't, it seems far-fetched, but maybe we're at a point right now where, where the American public is willing to listen. Have not, we've been on the streets, Chris, and several of you who are out here today, and we've been in the shopping malls, and we've been talking to people. And since February, we do not get the sense that, um, that people are for this war. We get the sense of fear in their eyes and of real kind of beleaguerment about what? Another war? I mean, literally, we had just gotten out of Afghanistan. And even we remember, even people who like supported the war in Afghanistan or never said much against it, they were really excited that we were out of it. And then all of a sudden, we're spending tens and hundreds of billions of dollars for yet another war. So um, again, it's about educating the public. And we want everyone to know. And that's why we're going all over congressional districts. And if you want us to come to your congressional district, if you want support coming and, and representing at your representative's uh, space, we will help you. So get in touch with us. But all over, we need to say no to this war economy. Oh, Rachel, is there something? Did you make Perfect. So how can people get in touch with you? What is the best way? So you can look at um, Code Pink San Pedro, and we will have actions there, as well as if you want to directly contact your congressperson, let's shout it out. The congressional switchboard is 202-202-224-224-3121. I have been so depressed about this ongoing war. And there's never any talk about a truce or diplomacy. It's just, you know, go right up there and they're talking about releasing nuclear warfare. Why? For what? You know, and I just feel strongly that liberals and progressives alike should be joining uh, anti-war coalition groups mm -hmm. to speak out about this. But instead, I just see people rolling over in a comatose about it. This is serious. This could end our existence here on the planet. And we ought not coddle these politicians. People treat politicians as though they're celebrities and they're not. They're public servants. That's so right. I just wanted to say to my representative here in New Korea, please stop voting for endless war. To tell you the truth, you know, the Democratic Party has never been, or for many, many decades, you know, uh, the anti-war party. And so we, we don't have an anti-war party. And the irony is, is that Many Republicans are coming on board. Even Donald Trump himself has said, you know, if he were in office, this war wouldn't be happening. Well, wow. it's not like he really cares because you can't trust him, but he's hearing from his base. Mm -hmm. And the base of the Republican Party is a lot of veterans and a lot of families um, who are suffering for what has happened to their children, especially over the last 20 years. And so they are suffering economically. They're suffering emotionally from all these wars. And so we're finding it's very interesting that it's actually more Republicans um, that are speaking out against war. So we are definitely 
going to coalition and going to um, push our kind of big, big picture anti-war message when these new Republicans come in our the fossil fuel economy. Well, we're saying in the war economy, we need a just transition also. We need to transition the mission of our military. So there's an organization active in the National Network Opposing the Militarization of Youth. Mm. Um, and there's a nationwide movement to let our young people know because they're being pressured to go into the military right now and, and lied to and promised all sorts of things. But in my interactions with youth, a lot of them understand that the reason the military can offer so much money in these bright, shiny packages is that that money's been taken from them in the peace economy. Um, yeah, one of the action is from a local Veterans for Peace national board member, and it's called Gamers for Peace. And so if any of our listeners are involved with young people or gaming in any way, um, please look up Gamers for Peace. And that's what it's all about is to um, turn these video games into efforts for peace and and to um, harness the nobility and and the courage and the well-meaning of young people um, into into problem solving, not more killing. New York Mayor Eric Adams has made headlines with his claim that facial recognition technology and the increased public surveillance would be the equivalent of Big Brother is protecting you. Adams also stated, quote, we will move forward on using the latest in technology to identify problems, from facial recognition technology to new tools that can spot those carrying weapons. We will use every available method to keep our people safe. The Democrat also brazenly suggested that mass surveillance wasn't a chilling, slippery slide, but in fact a good thing. Quote, it blows my mind how much we have not embraced technology. And part of that is because many of our constituents are afraid. Anything technology, they think, oh, it's a boogeyman. It's Big Brother watching you, he told Politico. No, Big Brother is protecting you, claimed Adams. As in George Orwell's 1984 dystopian classic, Adams presumably thinks that New Yorkers will learn to love Big Brother. Albert Fox Kahn, the head of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, responded by warning that facial recognition technology would be weaponized to crack down on every aspect of dissent in the city. Quote, These are technologies that would be chilling in anyone's hands. But to give an agency with such a horrifying record of surveillance abuse even more power at a time when they face dwindling oversight is a recipe for disaster. He said, civil liberties advocates have warned that making facial recognition technology pervasive could lead to a minority report style society where everyone, whether they have a criminal record or not, is tracked everywhere they go. In China, authorities expanded the use of the tech as a form of permission slip to decide whether citizens are allowed to get online to travel or shop an extension of the state's social credit score system. Quote, At present, a Chinese citizen will need to show his or her ID card while applying for a landline or the Internet, reported Daily Mail. The facial recognition test is set to verify that the ID card belongs to the applicant. As we previously highlighted, technology that reveals a person's identity without them even knowing they are being exposed has long been a goal of globalist technocrats. 
KBSK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Femicide, an unrecognized topic, and Jaden Taylor brings information about it. Hello, my name is Jaden Taylor. I'm 20, and today I'm going to be touching on the topic of femicide. For those of you who don't know, femicide is deliberate slaughtering of a woman or women. It is a hate crime that goes unpunished in most countries. In 2018, 10 women a day were murdered in Mexico. In the U.S., there have been over 64,000 black women reported missing since 2010 who still haven't been found and cases are still open. In Nigeria, Boko Haram kidnapped hundreds of schoolgirls in 2014, sexually abused them and made them perform suicide bombings. The institutions put in place in these countries are allowing men to get away with these crimes. There have been several riots and protests with nothing being done to change the lives of these women. In 2018, 2.3 million female immigrants were recorded in the United States. Women immigrants make up over 51.8% of the total foreign-born population. These are women who give up their rights to come to a country they know nothing of, escaping abuse, sex trafficking, and femicide in order to survive. Ever since a rash of femicides in 1990s in Juarez, Mexico, the number of women immigrants has risen. The issue needs statewide attention. The murdering of women who had clearly been tortured in Juarez caused the region to start looking into the systematic killing of women. This led the UN Women to launch the Latin American Model Protocol for the investigation of gender-related killings of women. The UN Women are now helping countries that have adopted the protocol to develop specialized legislation on femicide. Brazil was one of the first countries to adopt this protocol, which led to landmark legislation passed in March 2015. Since then, 16 other countries have passed anti-femicide legislation. The progress these countries have made is life-changing, but it needs to happen everywhere to protect women and punish the men involved in these hate crimes. Looking at the severity of these crimes, more cases should be open and there should be more evidence on these cases as well. Greater attention and pressure needs to be brought onto the justice system and leadership in governments to make sure these cases are handled fairly. These women and their families deserve justice and peace. The over 64,000 black women who have gone missing deserve to have their cases taken seriously or closed. They deserve to be found no matter what state they are in so their families can have some closure. Women deserve to be taken seriously about violent crimes performed against them, but far too often their voices are silenced or erased. All countries should know about and have legislature on femicide and it should be established in every country. This in particular is for Ingrid Escamilla, a 25-year-old woman who was murdered and skinned by her partner Eric Rosas in Mexico, and to 7-year-old Fatima who disappeared on February 11th and was found four days later abused, nude, and in a plastic bag. These murders would be the start of more riots and protests against femicide, putting pressure on Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador to act on obvious problem at hand. When will the government put this legislation in place? When will women be able to live in peace in their countries? I am upset. Latin American women and women across the world are upset, and everyone should be outraged. This should be a worldwide topic. Until it is, I will not stop speaking on it, and the UN will not stop fighting for adoption of protocol. My name is Jaden Taylor from Women's Leadership Project, reporting for KPFK Rebel Alliance News. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. 
Dr. Asim Malhotra, a British cardiologist, has been a verbal proponent of the 19 COVID-19 vaccines until the sudden death of his famous father right after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. Malhotra grew up in a family of doctors. His father was the first Asian to be elected as honorary vice president and deputy chair of the Council of the Medical, a British Medical Association, which represents more than 150,000 doctors in the UK. After his father's tragic death, Dr. Malhotra started his own research into the safety of COVID vaccines. In his recent peer-reviewed paper, he critically re-evaluates the true benefits and potential harms of the COVID shots. Russell Brand spoke with him on his show. A man who is a doctor, a cardiologist, a public health campaigner, Dr. Asim Malhotra. You've recently released a paper. What is it that you, what is it that's been revealed through your papers? So, Russell, um, these are papers, two papers published in the International Journal of Insulin Resistance, peer-reviewed. Essentially, I spent about nine months critically appraising the data on the mRNA vaccine, specifically Pfizer's vaccine, to look at the benefit and harms and what the implications were from those results in terms of how we move forward in the management of uh, COVID-19. And to conclude, essentially, uh, what I found is that, which is not news for many people, there was a clear lack of informed consent when it came to the administration of the vaccine. But when one breaks down the data, certainly now you have to vaccinate several thousand people to prevent one COVID death, and that's likely best case scenario. But the absolute risk of harm is actually unprecedented in the history of medicine. So we're talking about harms of at least one in 800 to one in, a one in a thousand of a serious adverse event occurring. Now, what that means is, uh, Russell, I think anyone looking at that data, which for me is unequivocal, um, it suggests, and that what I concluded from my paper, that the COVID mRNA vaccines need to be suspended, paused, or whatever you want to say, withdrawn, until a full investigation is launched into Pfizer's original trial, getting access to the raw data, and also analyzing properly what we call pharmacovigilance data, so real-world data around the reporting of adverse events, which I've said already is unprecedented. Can you tell me how big a sample size you're talking about? Like, what underwrites these claims? Well, when in evidence-based medicine, uh, when you look at data, you have to look at the quality of the study. So if we start first and foremost, I'm glad it's already been mentioned a few times. If you go back to Pfizer's original trial, um, there was a reanalysis done by independent researchers, very eminent scientists from University of Stanford, Robert Kaplan, associated with BMJ, Peter Doshi, and Joseph Freeman, who's a lead author who I've spoken to directly on his findings. And they looked into the original trials of Moderna and Pfizer. And by the way, Russell, why this is important is this is what we call the gold standard of evidence-based medicine, randomized controlled trials. It was these studies alone that led to the rollout of the vaccine, the approval of the vaccine, and even the coercion and mandates uh, for the vaccine. So the, the, what those original findings concluded independently, which I'm about to tell you, is crucial to the whole narrative now as we move forward. And they found, and this was published in the peer-reviewed journal Vaccine, one of the premier vaccine journals in the world, uh, only a few weeks ago. For me, it's a smoking gun. They found that the original trials suggested that one was more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from taking the vaccine than one was to be hospitalized with COVID. And this is also during the original Wuhan strain, if you remember, Russell, which was far more lethal. So it suggests certainly quite strongly that even at the beginning, 
it was likely that the vaccine was going to do more harm than good for most people. And I find it very hard to believe that the Pfizer scientists didn't know that. And it may well be that's why Pfizer was so keen to get indemnification across the world from several governments uh, against being liable for vaccine injury. And the, one of the, old, the biggest sort of largest democracy country in the world, if you like, um, actually said no, and that was India. India refused uh, for that uh, indemnification because they thought, well, if there are going to be serious vaccine injuries, the government is then going to be liable. And that's really the situation we're in. So as, as far as quality of data is concerned, it's the highest quality data. And given that risk of serious adverse events, which is likely at least one in 800, then uh, for me, it's a no-brainer. It needs to be paused and it needs to be an investigation immediately. It seems to me doctor that to admit a transgression on this scale would be so disruptive so expensive so such a sort of a dissolution of the assumptions that we lived with for that two-year period there's kind of an insurmountable barrier really do you not feel that ultimately what will happen is that you'll be marginalised and maligned and these findings will be buried. Can't, you can't admit this. It's too heavy, isn't it? No, it's a great point, Russell. So I, I, I thought about this in a lot of depth even before I published this. But the reality is this. For me personally, first and foremost, I cannot continue as my, in my good conscience as a doctor, as a public health campaigner, without exposing this truth. And Russell, this isn't an anomaly. This is not an anomaly. I, I for the last sort of 10 years, have campaigned on increasing transparency in medicine. And on three occasions, Russell, I've even called for a public inquiry through different media outlets, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, The Eye, saying that we need an inquiry into the pharmaceutical industry and how research is disseminated. What are the next steps that we can take? Are you saying that people should, obviously you're saying no one should get any more COVID boosters and that it's the role of the media now to start publicising this uh, new data. Do you think that there's any chance of the kind of transparency that's required? Russell, I think there is. And of course, part of it is through social media and the dissemination of knowledge to the masses. I've seen a huge change. What, the papers were published a couple of weeks ago in the Journal of Insulin Resistance. It's open access. It's free. I've had amazing feedback, phenomenal feedback from doctors. I've had no serious rebuttals to the paper. There have been a few blogs, a few character assassination type of stuff, but they're not addressing the main concerns. No one is rebutting any of the clear facts. And certainly, as a cardiologist, the reason I looked at this in the first place is one of the most common side effects or concerns of the mRNA vaccines are cardiovascular, myocarditis, cardiac arrest, heart attacks. And the data that suggests that is very, very good quality data. So for me, the way we move forward is through this continued dissemination for the public to become aware. But I'm not somebody that is just going to, you know, pop, you know, write a paper and then sit back. You know, I will push this and campaign on this issue as long as I can. In fact, I'm actually speaking the British Parliament to MPs to actually present data to MPs to say the conclusions are very clear. We need to suspend the vaccine. Now, one thing I know people should be reassured, even Joe Biden said the pandemic is over. Omicron that's circulating now is no worse than a bad cold or the flu. So if there's a time to pause the vaccine, it's now and people should be reassured by it. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles.
The recently enacted price cap on seaborne Russian oil is leading to an increasing energy shortage and conflict in Europe. Alex Chrysophoru and Alexander Mercurius from the Duran analyzed the situation. Let's talk about the situation in the energy system. Right? We have the oil price cap, we have the gas price cap. The actual reality, the underlying reality is that going forward into 2023, we are looking at increasing shortages of both gas and oil. And those oil and gas price caps, as Putin has just said, are going to make those shortages even worse because, of course, What is happening is that not only is Russian oil anyway going to be redirected eastwards, which is what the Russians are saying, but China is opening up and it's going to, its demands for oil and gas are going to grow. And the United States has depleted its strategic reserve. So the, the, the extent to which the Biden administration can go on pumping oil into the global oil supply system um, has now probably come close to its limits. So there's likely to be a shortage of oil and of gas next year. And it's highly likely that prices are going to rise. We are having a cold winter. Um, I was just, just before we did this program, reading a report in the Daily, Daily Telegraph in Britain that there's an Arctic um, zone over the United States, which points to the United States having a very cold winter. We've just been through a cold spell in Northern Europe. That's going to inevitably increase energy consumption. So we're looking forward, we're looking now to a likely shortage of oil and gas. And of course, we're working very hard in the West to make that shortage even worse with these strange sanctions and these very weird oil and gas price caps, which the Russians will not comply with and which might, which is going to remove inevitably oil and gas, Russian oil and gas from Western markets. It's left us in a total mess. I mean, you have people like Olaf Scholz, who admittedly is... Well, and maybe not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but even he is now admitting that, you know, he would like to go back once the war in conflict in Ukraine is over. He would like to go back to the nice situation we had before where Russian oil and Russian gas, you know, comes westwards again and everything goes back to the status quo. Nobody Nobody seriously believes that's going to happen. If you think it's going to happen, then you should just read what Putin has just been saying in the various speeches that he's been making. I mean, his bitterness towards the West, towards the Europeans particularly, is, I mean, it's, I mean, he's snapped. He even, in effect, apologized to the Russian people. People haven't picked this up, but he even, in effect, apologized to the Russian people in front of the military at the collegium of the Russian defense ministry. He said, I tried, I tried repeatedly to build good relations with the West, with the Europeans, and I failed because it's impossible, because these people will never accept us. They don't want us as, they don't regard us as civilized people. They don't want us in their so-called civilized world. So there is no going back to the situation which existed 
before. And I think that's a done thing now. I think we will never get oil and gas being supplied to Europe from Russia on the, in the way that it was. Even allowing for that, by trying to impose this price gap, these price gaps, we've made things worse because there's internationally traded oil and gas, which comes from Russia. And there's now a structural problem because we've said we're not going to buy that. And we're going to punish anybody who tries to trade in that. We're going to deny them insurance services if they exceed the price gap. The Chinese doing so. The Indians are doing so. But it's creating a structural problem in the world energy markets. And as Putin is also pointed out in another speech he's made, he's made lots of speeches this week, by the way. He's been uh, so busy, it's almost ridiculous. But anyway, he's also pointed out that these attempts to try to impose caps, what he calls administrative measures to lower energy prices at a time of energy shortage is just going to make those shortages worse. And he's right. Any economist would tell you as much. People have been saying this Every, I mean, they've, lots of economists have been saying it. Uh, uh, Steve Nuchin, the former Treasury Secretary, said it. Nonetheless, they went ahead and did it. I mean, what Mark Rutter and all of those people ought to be saying is not that we're going to, we've given up imposing more sanctions because we've reached the limits of what we can do in sanctions terms. What they really need to start doing is say to themselves, have the sanctions worked? No. Russian economy is still there. Its GDP contraction has been actually very small. Industrial production is back to where it was this time last year, probably going to rise next year. Inflation in Russia is falling, which it is. It's below where it is in many places in the EU, probably quite a lot below where it is in many places in the EU. And Russian foreign policy and policy towards Ukraine has not shifted one inch. So instead of talking about, well, we can't do more in, in sanctions terms because we've reached the limit, what they ought to be doing is saying these sanctions aren't working and start to take steps to dismantle them. But of course they won't. They will continue in the same course that they have, they will threaten and bully anybody in the EU who, like Orban, who says, well, this has gone too far. They will continue with this present course and the deindustrialization of Europe, which we were talking about at the start of this year. But it's only going to gain further momentum. It's amazing that uh, that oil is moving through the uh, Druzba. I mean, the Druzba is important for Hungary and, and Serbia, yeah. from what I remember as well. But uh, yeah, it's amazing I mean, that they're that they're actually allowing the, the oil to flow through there. Yeah, I mean, well, which is, which is, of course, flatly contradicts the sanctions, which said that these countries, Germany and Poland, wouldn't take any Russian pipeline gas. They probably are. Again, the question is, at what price? Are they telling the Russians, well, we're not going to buy your oil at more than $60 a barrel because we're not going to buy at any level because we've imposed this price cap. If they say that to the Russians, the Russians won't sell that oil, even if that oil is currently trading at, say, $40 a barrel, because that's what the Russians have said. And we know that there's a decree coming, which Putin is due to sign next week. He says either on Monday or Tuesday, in which he's going to set out, they're going to set out the legal uh, barriers to selling oil 
to countries that apply the oil price cap. So we'll see where it where all this goes and what it does. But it ought to be a lesson that Europe cannot get by without Russian oil and without Russian gas. It ought to be a further lesson to the West. If you start interfering in this way with energy markets, you're only going to create massive problems for yourself. All the facts point to a big increase in oil and gas prices next year. There's even reports now that without gas flowing from the Russians, the EU is going to run out of gas very quickly next year. But what do they do? Show any sign of changing course? None. No, well, they're hoping for regime change in Moscow. Absolutely, to which they have no plan. As you said, the only thing they can do is keep their fingers crossed and hope that Putin runs under a bus, <laughs> that someone in the Kremlin moves against him, that all of these most unlikely, any one of these most unlikely things will happen. I mean, you know, um, but that's what Western policy has been reduced to, hoping that something will turn up. You know, there's a character in one of Charles Dickens's novels, Mr. McCorber, who says this, you know, he, he, he goes into debt and he says, oh, it's all right. Something will turn up. I'll get by somewhere, somehow. And he ends up in prison. <laughs> well, in terms of the people of Europe, might be worse. I mean, I read a report. There was a report in Bloomberg, which I briefly believed, which was that Russian oil um, exports crashed by 54%. And somebody who is extremely authoritative contacted me privately and told me that's not true. That's complete nonsense and provided me with a lot of data which said that that's absolutely not true. But anyway, that's what that's what they have. They hope something will turn up. Somehow there'll be a magic bullet that will kill the Russians off and we'll be back where we were in 1995, piling into Russia, buying up its oil, buying up its gas, setting up our factories there and doing all those things. And, um, you know, all will be well. It's not going to happen. I mean, I don't see how it can happen. And as I said, I did read this report that energy consumption in Europe has now fallen by 20% already. Now, that's not consumers doing what Mrs. Maloney wants, which is switching off their bulb, light bulbs. I doubt very many people will do that, by the way. It's a sign that Europe is falling into a very severe industrial recession because that's where the energy savings, those big energy savings must be coming from. For KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. It's a corrupt, f***ed up society. Mm. Let, you know, so I'm not, I'm not a big f- fan of uh, Ukraine. That was Andrew Milburn, founder of the Mozart Group, one of the largest private military companies working in Ukraine. Milburn's Mozart outfit has been providing military training to Ukrainian soldiers since the early days of the conflict. The retired Marine commander Andrew Milburn shared his experience and conclusions from working in Ukraine during an appearance on the Team House podcast last month only now making headlines thanks to tweets by Max Blumenthal of the Grey Zone. During the podcast, visibly inebriated Milburn stated that, quote, there are plenty of effed up people running Ukraine, end quote. It's not about Ukraine. We're not like, I happen to have, you know, Ukraine flag tied to my bag, but I'm not 
oh my god, Ukraine's so awesome. No, because it's, I understand that there are plenty of people running Ukraine. It's not about that, it's about global norms, right? Right, right. It's about Putin. Founder of Mozart, Andrew Milburn, also stated that Kiev's forces commit war crimes. Ukrainians are in violation of um, the Hague Convention. They're filming of a number of things that they're doing with uh, uh, POWs is violating law of armed conflict. And he can't, guys, right. killing the Russian prisoners is... Right, you know... These violations. Oh, it's atrocities. No, yeah. I mean, it still is. I mean, you, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't kill dudes who, I mean, everyone knows who surrendered. I mean, and that, and that, there was plenty of that. Back in August, Milburn was quoted by CBS News in a since-deleted report that revealed how Western-supplied weapons were disappearing in Ukraine and popping up on the black market. I can tell you unarguably that on the frontline units, these things are not getting there. All right, um, drones, uh, switchblades, IFACs, they're not, all right, um, body armor, helmets, you name it. Is, is it safe to characterize this as a little bit of a, a black hole? I, I, I suppose if you don't have visibility of where this stuff is going and if you're asking that question, then it would appear that it's a black hole, yeah. A U.S. advisor to the Ukrainian army has called on Washington to authorize the delivery of banned cluster munitions to Ukraine. RT has the details. An American advisor to Ukraine's military said in an interview to CNN that Washington should approve supplies of cluster munitions to, quote, increase base lethality. The 2008 Convention on Cluster Munitions bans such weapons as undetonated devices pose a danger to the public. The document labor rights lawyer Dan Kavalik says that the call for such weapons is reckless. What it will do, it will cause suffering to you know, devices. They exist to, uh, to maim. Bitters provided cluster bombs, for example, in Yemen. I don't think it, they care about the Ukrainian people. If they did, they would have abided by the Minsk agreements. Uh, instead, they allowed Ukraine to continue to uh, attack the Donbass uh, for eight years, even before the special operations began in February. It's very clear to me that the U.S. will fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. The Ukrainians are seen merely as cannon fodder for the United States. Telesur reports that despite Western sanctions and severe damage to health facilities that the terrorist war has caused, Syria has shown a remarkable progress in the recovery of its health sector during the current year. The expansion of the opening of hospitals, health centers and pharmaceutical plants is evidence of that. Syrian health authorities offer free medical care to all the country's citizens without exception. The blockade causes limitations. However, they continue to do so in the many rehabilitated and rebuilt health facilities with the resources and with the support of friendly countries. One example of that is the opening of the Harasta Hospital in Damascus countryside this year. It has 90 beds and the setting of the first stem cell transplant center in the country. 
Despite the difficult circumstances of war and blockade that prevent us from importing the necessary medicines, equipment and medical supplies, we have managed to build an equipment center and other health centers in the country. So we can consider this achievement as a resilient answer and a true miracle. Thousands of civilians and military personnel crippled as a result of a terrorist war imposed on Syria were able to recover their physical and kinetic abilities thanks to the free medical and physiological care they received at state-owned and civil society prosthetic centers. Meanwhile, the national campaign for the early detection of breast, cervical and prostate cancers continue in the country. Despite the difficult war and blockade situations, the Syrian authorities promised to continue this work in 2023 to guarantee public health. Sky News reported on Monday, a Scottish charity has raised the alarm about the potential of a notable rise in the death rate among the homeless in the country, as the entire United Kingdom grapples with a worsening economic crisis. Good morning! They pace the cold streets of Aberdeen, providing aid to those who have nothing. Are you warm enough? A group of people who bring help to the homeless in a time of escalating crisis. I started over a year ago now, um, and when I started we were seeing kind of up to 20 people a day, giving them blankets, sleeping bags, food and clothes whenever they needed it. Now, because of the cost of living crisis and also the homelessness crisis, we're seeing it can be up to about 65 people a day. Talk me through what life is like on the streets at the moment. Hellish. Gary hasn't had somewhere to call home for more than 30 years. This winter, he says, is worse than ever. Just a nightmare. It's just, you just want to get up. I feel left behind. My situation's bad, and there's no facilities out there now for people. The most recent official statistics paint a grim picture. They reveal around 250 homeless people died here in Scotland last year, much higher than pre-pandemic times, and a deteriorating trend which is causing grave concern for what lies ahead. It's a massive concern. The biggest issue for me within that is the age profile of people. The vast majority are under 45, and the trauma of experiencing homelessness that does lead to premature ageing. It leads to worsening of health conditions. This is a survival map. And it takes 44 crisp pockets. Here in Inverness, Gillian makes sleeping bags for the homeless using old crisp packets, a cost-effective idea with far-reaching benefits. The group that I'm part of, um, they got feedback from a guy who sleeps on the streets. Um, and there was like tears in his eyes. Uh, he was so delighted with this because it's just life-changing. A small gesture in just one rural community in a country where those without a home fear the long winter ahead. And that's all for today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. As we approach collegiate bowl games, NFL playoffs, and soon a Super Bowl, Lauren Turner, licensed clinical social worker, encourages everyone and athletes on surviving the pressure of winter and holiday blues. 
A lot of people associate the end of the year with holidays and exciting other things, but some people, including athletes, don't always consider it the highlight of their year. In fact, many people sometimes begin to feel really, really, really sad around the holidays. And this is the time of the year when depression symptoms usually start to get a little bit greater for people. For some people who live in colder spaces where you have to wear lots and lots of layers and the weather can be inclement and unpredictable, it can help to increase feelings of sadness and depression. And one of the ways that we're going to be able to look at that differently, even as athletes who may be used to spending more time outdoors and getting large amounts of vitamin D and other things is that sometimes we all start to get a little bit overwhelmed with the weather as it's changing. So the weather isn't the only thing that comes up as something that can be really challenging for athletes to have to deal with between exercising in the cold, having the days turn into shorter days of experience, like shorter days with the sun. So the sun is only out for a few hours in the winter, whereas it's out for longer periods of time in the summer and uh, spring months, which generally puts people in a better mood. They're more willing to go outside. They want to play. Everyone wants to be at the beach, especially here in the LA area. I know I spent most of my summer at the beach, but here I am in this turtleneck very thick dress because the reality is is that it's getting colder but when the days get shorter i know daylight savings time is coming up from where i am today but when the days get shorter like this it really does make it very difficult for people to be able to process their feelings without some of the outlets that they have during the warmer months. So, and instead they're now being coupled with pressures from family, it's cuffing season, right? The idea about finding your bae before holiday events and you're going to go see your grandma and all your friends and family members are going to be asking so when are you going to start dating when like there's a lot of pressure in some of those things what are you doing next with your life these questions may seem really simple when they're being asked and you're busy and you're having fun you're having your hot girl hot boy summer hot person summer and you are out in the streets and living your best summertime life but you really have to sit with some of that stuff in the winter and that's really where some of the seasonal effective stuff comes up is because it ends up happening that you are not out and about you don't have time to do anything other than sit and reflect on the feelings that you've been having for all this time that you've been ignoring, that you've been pushing down with fun activities, that you've been being able to busy yourself and get away from, the holidays can end up being a really true time for reflection for many people. So with that said, I'm going to encourage you to 
do a few things. One of the first things that I'm going to encourage you to do is to take this stuff seriously. If you notice that you're not getting out as much as you used to, or that you used to have outdoor workouts and now they're turned indoors, I'm gonna encourage you to start taking things like, or talk to your doctor first, to like look into seeing if you maybe have a vitamin D deficiency, which could also really affect your mood. Maybe you're eating more comfort foods than normal, whereas in the summer you were eating more fruits and vegetables because they were more readily available. And now that it's the winter, they do seem a little bit harder to be able to come across, but still try to implement eating as many of those things as you can into your diet. If you are starting to feel incredibly sad for some particular reason, I'm gonna also encourage you to think about starting therapy at this point because it can be very advantageous to have a therapist to be able to talk to about whatever it is that's going on with you. And this doesn't have to be something that happens just in the winter. One of the main things and purposes of me making any of the content that I've been making is to really destigmatize some of the thoughts about mental health. So I really hope that you guys take this into effect and use some of these ideas. Thank you. Here is your Rebel News community calendar. What it is, KPFK? I'm Angela Birdsong, and we got your calendar tips for you today. Grand Park's 10th anniversary, New Year's Eve in downtown Los Angeles, for the largest free New Year's Eve event on the West Coast. We'll start the celebration at 8 p.m. until 12.30 a.m on six city blocks with two stages featuring numerous DJs, musicians, dance troops, food trucks, light shows, and more. For details, go to grandparkla.org. The Long Beach and Los Angeles chapters of the 100 Black Men of America highlight their partnership with the Alzheimer's Association to raise awareness about the brain disorder with director Garrett Davis's national tour stage play, Unforgettable, a story about a family's journey and how they deal with a disease they know nothing about. See Unforgettable January 14th, 5 p.m. at the Wilshire Ebell Theater in Los Angeles, also heading to Dallas and Houston, Texas in February. For more info, check out unforgettableplay.com to register for free tickets. The Japanese American National Museum offers free admission on Thursday, giving visitors prime chance to check out Be Here 1942, a new lens on the Japanese American incarceration, which is a stirring documentation of the forced relocation and imprisonment of Japanese Americans living in Little Tokyo during World War II. Get more info at jnm.org for Japanese American Museum. I'm Angela Birdsong, and this is your Rebel News Alliance calendar tips. And thank you. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. We're very excited to bring real progressive news to Southern California and connect with you. If you have story ideas or comments, please email us at news at kpfk.org. Thank you for tuning in. Please be with us again next tomorrow at 6 p.m. and every day, Monday through Friday. We love you. We hope you have a wonderful evening. I'm Ziri Bidon. And I'm Angela Birdsall. And thanks to our engineer Wendell Handy and our correspondents Paulina Vasiliev and Tandy Siswe Chamarenga. Coming up next is Feminine Magazine. Thank you.
Hi, this is Jessica Aldridge from Eco Justice Radio. Check us out on KPFK at our new time Fridays from KPFK at our new time Fridays from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Join us as we present environmental. 